Welcome to The Balance. My name is Catlin Tucker, and this podcast is presented by StudySync. Today, my guest is Matt Miller, who is a blogger, an author, speaker, and educator with more than 10 years of classroom experience. He's the author of five books, including Ditch That Textbook, Ditch That Homework, Don't Ditch That Tech, Tech Like a Pirate, and Do More with Google Classroom. I am so excited to have on the show Matt Miller. So welcome. And I would love for you to start out just telling us a little bit about your journey in education. Yeah, absolutely. So thrilled to be a part of this show, Catlin. Thanks for uh, having me on. And um, yeah, my journey in education, um, <laughs> it was not a common one. I was not one of those people that was an education major, like right out the gate in college. I wasn't one of those kids when I was little, like I knew I was going to be a teacher and I would set up all my stuffed animals and teach lessons to them. Oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> I, I was not, I didn't make worksheets for my sister. <laughs> you know, that was, that was not, that was not me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, was that you, by the way? I'm curious. No, no, it was not. I remember thinking, who would do this job? Mm-hmm. Not me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I was, um, I was a journalism major in college and I was convinced that I was going to be a newspaper reporter or a newspaper editor when um, I got out of college. And I did for about three months and I was covering like county government, uh, like local politics and stuff. And I hated it. Oh, wow. But my um my wife was teaching middle school social studies and sometimes on on weekdays off i would go in and like hang out in her classroom and there's just something about it that just seemed right there was mm-hmm. like this magic that i could kind of like feel about being around kids and interacting with them and teaching them and making it relevant my wife is just like the queen at that mm-hmm. and so um it totally inspired me and i thought this you know, what got me into journalism in the first place was the ability to work with other reporters on their stuff. And so I'm, I'm like, that's teaching. What right. got me into journalism was teaching. So long story short, I went back to school after a long career of three months in <laughs> professional journalism. Totally and extensive. Very extensive. I, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, I started teaching on an emergency teaching permit uh, teaching high school Spanish, didn't even have my license yet. I had no idea what I was doing. But I think that sort of helped me because I wasn't like inculcated into the traditional status quo way of doing teaching. And so it kind of helped me to see like, to see it through a fresh set of eyes that mm-hmm. wasn't the establishment, so to speak. And um, it was hard. It was really hard at first because I really had I really had to learn so much on the fly but I'm so glad that it worked out that way. And, you know, the rest is history, I guess. Okay, so I'm dying to know, where did your Spanish language come from? My, both of my children are bilingual in English and Spanish. That was like very important to me. And I'm thinking now, because I was reading through your bio a little bit before, obviously, and I know a bit about your work, but it would seem with your, you know, whopping three months of journalism uh, that you might transition into school in like an English mode or even mm-hmm. like running the school newspaper or something, but you went into Spanish. So I'm just curious where that came from. Yeah, um, I I had no connection to the Spanish language other than what I learned in high school. Hmm. So um, it was it was really just 
book Spanish, and it was mostly because I was fascinated by it. I was curious about it. I thought it was such a cool thing that it, you know, really opened up a whole segment of the world that I could communicate with directly that I couldn't otherwise. And I think just like all of that stuff kind of got me into that. But um, yeah, that's that's really all that it came from. And I, I also realized that if I was going to get into journalism and teach journalism, there was only like three full-time right. high school journalism <laughs> positions in the entire state of Indiana. And I probably was not going to get one of those. So um, I thought, you know, Spanish interested me more and was a better connection for me than, you know, teaching literature or grammar or anything. I ended up teaching grammar in Spanish anyway. But right. yeah, that's that's where that came from. Oh, interesting. I was just curious. So mm-hmm. you are very well known for your blog and your book titled Ditch That Textbook. And actually just hearing the little snippet of you going into this profession without really going through that whole program where you're, you know, quote unquote, taught to teach and probably really aided your thinking outside the box around some of this stuff. But I'm curious, like what inspired you to start the blog, to write that first book? Like, what did you feel was problematic about working from a textbook? Yeah. Um, for me, I taught for three or four years um, teaching high school Spanish, all levels of high school Spanish. I was actually the entire world languages department in my school district. <laughs> no other languages, no other teachers. It was just me. Um, which, first of all, if you think back to me coming into education, not knowing what in the world I was doing, and then not having any colleagues I could talk to, it was just like a recipe for disaster. Right. I don't know how it worked out, but um, I taught very traditionally, uh, you know, textbooks, worksheets, workbook pages, questions at the end of the chapters, um, all of that stuff. And after about three or four years, <laughs> I like to joke that um, after about three or four years, I started to develop this secret that my fellow teachers didn't know, my principal didn't know, but my students all knew this secret. And the secret was that the students in my high school Spanish classes couldn't speak Spanish. (laughs) (laughs) Which is kind of a problem if you're a Spanish teacher, right? I mean, as someone... It's a little problematic. Exactly. And like you, as someone who appreciates the ability to be bilingual and actually communicate, like, you could probably see how traditional Spanish classes are not set up so well to do that kind of thing, right? Oh my goodness. I took Spanish for seven years and my kids who are fluent just tell me all day long how I don't say things correctly and like kind of just, mom, stop. Your seven years of middle school and high school Spanish are not Mm -hmm. cutting it. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't walk away being able to have conversations in Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I, I, I started to find too that, um, my, my textbooks were almost like a stumbling block to becoming a fluent speaker of Spanish. Hmm. And it frustrated me. And so I just started thinking like, my goodness, you know, babies can acquire a language without doing verb conjugation drills. There's just, there's got to be a better way. And so that's kind of where the whole ditch that textbook thing started with was I just started tinkering with stuff. Like hmm. I found out about this teaching method that was uh, very conversational, that was based on... Um, you know, like storytelling and questioning, question and answers. Mm-hmm. And um, I started tinkering with that. I started bringing technology into the mix. And I started doing like, you know, things with uh, tangible stuff, like with manipulatives. And um, I mean, just whatever I could come up with. And that was my way to sort of ditch that textbook, little by little by little. It was like one activity at a time. Until after a while, I had some materials in place to teach the content. I had practice activities. I had projects. And I started to think, well, 
why do I even have these textbooks anymore? Right. What, are, what, are, what are they doing? It was just like little by little by little, I just kind of weaned my way off of my textbooks because I was finding better ways to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, some ways that were more engaging, some ways that were more hands-on, some ways that matched up better with, you know, what brain science tells us that our brains prefer. And after all of that stuff, you know, that a- after that, when things started to, when I, when I started to get the handle on some things, I felt like it was my duty to share some of what I had learned because I had been poured into by so many teacher bloggers and teacher authors, you know, like, um, John Spencer mm-hmm. and um, Vicki Davis mm-hmm. and um, Wes Fryer. There's a whole bunch of them that were um, sharing stuff so generously and freely when I was a baby teacher. And um, <laughs> I felt like it was kind of my job to take what was working for me and just say, hey, here's what I tried. If it works for you, great, but I'm still going to share it. And the blog title, Ditch That Textbook, just came to me while I was out on a run. I, I even remember where I was. I was coming around. I was finishing mile two, turning into mile three. And I remember the corner that I turned in that on that run. And all of a sudden, it just sort of dawned on me, ditch that textbook. I, wow. should, I should try that. And so that's, that's kind of that's where that all came from. And that's so cool. And I think in some respects, you know, especially for new teachers, when you're given that textbook and, and the mm-hmm. implication is use it, it can be so... I fe- it feels helpful at first, and I think long-term, it can be so limiting, and people mm-hmm. feel like, well, that's what the textbook says. That's how I should approach it. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've gone in and worked with a staff where we're talking about blended learning and how do we weave together these elements, and the teachers say to me, but you're talking about small group and individual instruction, and my book is all written whole group. Like, uh-huh. that's the only way it can be done. So that's what I worry about, too, is just the implication that there's a particular way to go about teaching something, and does that mm-hmm. wrong? teachers of some degree of creativity, which is what I hear you saying you are embracing, which is curating and finding and tinkering and experimenting. Yeah, you're you're right. Um, Yeah, I think that, like like you said, for a newer teacher, sometimes the textbook is a good scaffold to get to where they want to go. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. like the scope and sequence is usually in your textbook. Right. Um, As I was trying to kind of make things on my own and figure out my own path, I grabbed, you know, four or five different textbooks because the structure was there. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of like provided me the structure of what my course needed to have. And um, after that, it was like, it was my time to remix. You know, I was like a mm-hmm. DJ and I had that <laughs> that song and then I was like remixing that song to to match what I, what I wanted to do. So, um, but I think you're right. Um, you know, there's a, a saying that... Um, I found in uh, Dan Ryder and Amy Burval's book. I think it's called Intention, mm-hmm. not Intention. It's a it's a book about teacher creativity, and I love it. And uh, they just very simply said, creativity craves constraints. Oh. I know they're probably not the first one to think about that, but mm-hmm. um, and I think that there's there's some truth to that in how we teach too. You know, we we still. You know, some people say, like, get outside of the box. Some people say, destroy the box. You know, think outside the box. But the box exists. Mm-hmm. And we have to we have to operate within the box to some extent. But what you do inside of the box is totally up to you. Mm-hmm. And I'm with, I'm with you. I work with teachers sometimes, and they're like, yeah, but my textbook says I have to do it this way. And I go, yeah, but 
your textbook and your curriculum and the scope and sequence, they say what needs to be covered and what students need to master. There is so much creativity in how you get from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, you know, as long as they've mastered certain things, as long as they demonstrate proficiency in certain things, the way that you get there is very much up to you. That is the, for me, that is like the joy and the purpose of being a teacher yep. is finding my <laughs> way, finding the way that works for the kids to be able to get there that brings joy and helps them to realize the the joy of learning. And it doesn't mean that you have to assign, you know, worksheet B out of unit four, chapter two. Like there, there's lots of lots of ways to do that. And it's just like you said, there's there's a lot of creativity in that. Yeah, no, I think the design part of the work we do as educators is like m some of my favorite work that we yes. do. It's just so exciting and freeing. So I could not agree more. Right. Um, you also wrote Ditch That Homework, which is a sentiment I can wholeheartedly agree mm. with. Um, yes. So I'm just curious, like, could you share some of the big ideas from that book? Like, why do you think teachers should kind of ditch homework? Absolutely. Um First, can I just say that when I wrote Ditch That Textbook and I created the blog, and then I wrote a book called Ditch That Homework, I didn't realize how angry those topics would make some people. Um, have you thought about writing Ditch Those Grades? Because I feel like that would be another one that would just spark a lot of uh, controversy. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. there You can't imagine the number of different titles that people have proposed to me with the word ditch in them at this point. But um, yeah, with Ditch That Homework, you know, I, I co-authored it with Alice Keeler um, mm -hmm. and uh, Alice and I both came at it from kind of different perspectives in that I think at the time she was teaching middle school math and I was teaching high school um, Spanish or we had just recently been teaching those. And so, you know, math and Spanish are very different creatures mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And we both were coming at it going talk about how frustrated we were with um, homework, mostly because it wasn't getting the results that I think that we all just assume that homework is going to get. Mm -hmm. Because for years and years and years, teachers have always assigned homework, you know, under the guise of it's going to get us extra repetitions. And it's the same kind of stuff we do in class. And so if they go home and do that same kind of stuff, it's just adding extra learning in the same way that they would get in class. And, you know, we started to realize that I think teachers that assign homework a lot of times do so through rose-colored glasses. It's just the, the amount of learning that actually happens and the quality of learning that happens is usually a fraction of what we think that it's actually going to be. Um, and so in the book, inst instead of using an entire book to bash homework, which <laughs> we, we sort of did that in the first chapter. Like, we, I mean, we had to lay out our concerns about it and make mm -hmm. the case for it that it's not as effective as a lot of times we think that it is. There are equity issues. Um, there are is stress that comes with it. Not to say that, you know, we need to try to eliminate all stress from kids, but for goodness sake, they're, they and their families mm -hmm. do a pretty good job of putting on, enough of it on themselves as it is. Yeah. Um, the fighting, the, I mean, with all of that stuff, the big question, and Alice and I actually made one whole page of our book that just says, what do we do now? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, in light of all of that, what can we do now? That's what we made most of the book to be about. And right. so we talked about, you know, a handful of things, um, you know, like, boosting up some of those skills that make students 
better students and better learners, like, you know, responsibility and planning. We we talk in the book about adjusting some of our practices based on what brain research says, you know, so mm-hmm. getting some of that retrieval practice in there using metacognition, um, you know, like a lot of those really rich practices that we are learning to to be best practices that sometimes mm-hmm. we don't always use. And I think our our big premise in the book was let's optimize every minute that we can that we're in the classroom so that we don't have to send ineffective learning activities home with kids that don't get the, that that sometimes end up leaving them maybe worse off than they mm-hmm. actually would be. You know, for the gains and all of the frustrations and heartache that comes with it. We're not always convinced that kids are are better off. So that's kind of the the main premise is that if we optimize every single minute that we can of the time that we have with kids and then eliminate these ineffective homework practices, we end up better off in the end. Yeah. Well, and I love that you mentioned that there's an equity component to this that is so important to acknowledge. And one of the reasons... I am not a huge fan of homework um, beyond being a mom and just seeing the impact that the volume of homework has on a child's kind of mental state, their inability to really kind of relax and unplug and go outside and do all the things we want them to Mm -hmm. do as parents. But in addition to that, it's like you send so much of this practice and review home with kids under the assumption that they're in an environment that's safe. They're in an environment that's quiet. They're in an environment with a parent who speaks the language homework is coming home in, who can support that child if they get stuck. There is a huge equity issue that I think we need to acknowledge when we talk about homework. Yeah, you're right. And you know, a lot of times when the homework gets sent home, the kind of homework that gets sent home is the kind of homework that the kids who are good at it are good at already. Right. And then the kids who are struggling are struggling with already. And so then it's almost like there's this divide between the kids who are really getting it and the kids who are really struggling. And homework just exacerbates that divide instead of equalizing it. So mm-hmm. the good get better and the bad get worse. And all of a sudden, you know, your your grade book becomes totally out of balance because, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> a good thing to talk about on a podcast called The Balance, right? <laughs> exactly. That, um, you know, it, it becomes completely out of balance. And now the kids who are struggling have to dig out even further. And, and you know, I know Alice is big on talking about all of the research um, of efficacy, you know, mm-hmm. like do self-efficacy, do students feel like they can dig out of that? Do they feel like they can do the work? And, um, you know, with, with all of that, it's, there, there are just lots and lots of concerns that I have with it. And, um, I mean, we could, we could continue to go on and on, but you're right. There is definitely an equity piece to this. And whenever students go out of your classroom and try to take things into their own homes, all of a sudden, there are all of these advantages and disadvantages that come into play that we can't control as much. And, you know, it's not to say that we can control every single variable, but I'd like to control the ones that I can that help my students succeed. No, absolutely. I absolutely agree. Um, so you have to hear the statement from teachers then who are like, wait a second, though, Matt, there's no way to get through all this curriculum and all right. this reading without assigning homework. So like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've heard that before, too. And 
again, I think that there's a little bit of an illusion or a mirage going on. It's like, if I've taught the content, then the kids have learned the content. Right. You know that mirage, right? (laughs) If I said it, they heard it. We all know it now, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so whenever we start to, to build that up, we think, okay, if I've covered it, then that means that the kids have learned it and now we can move on. And, you know, I look at uh, my wife who teaches high school social studies and she's got um, advanced placement U.S. history is one of the classes that she teaches or advanced placement world history. I'm sorry. And so she has kind of like, you know, for a while, they, they've they've improved the course since then. But for a while, it was like, you have to cover the entire history of the entire world in a meaningful advanced placement <laughs> way by the end of the year. And it's like, what are you what are you going to do with that? Right. I mean, you know, we, we only have, obviously, X number of minutes in the day. And if we say that we're going to hustle through something and get through it so that it's covered, like, what does that even mean, really? Right. We hustled through it and we got through it. So now that it's covered, does that mean that you get to feel better about yourself whenever students didn't get it? So, you know, we, we only have a finite amount of content to cover. And honestly, I feel like a lot of the states and a lot of the organizing bodies that create our content standards put an unfair burden on teachers and students' backs. Because mm. a lot of times they have, we're getting really, really deep here. They, they have a lot <laughs> of times a big political agenda that they have to, oh, you yeah. know, they have to make sure that their state and their organization looks rigorous. And so now all of a sudden, all of that is put on the backs of already exhausted teachers and students. And I think at some point we have to get honest with ourselves to say, yeah, we can't mm-hmm. cover all of that. We are not going to be able to truly cover all of that. So let's just get real honest about what are we going to cover and how are we going to do it? And let's use those minutes to do that to the best of our ability and kind of throw off the mirage as best as possible. That's my best answer to that, I guess. Yeah. No, I feel the same way. I feel like the volume of curriculum and content teachers standards that they're supposed to cover is just not possible. It's not possible to get it done. And so for myself, I'm just like, take that weight off, figure out what are your priorities? Like, in five years, what is it you hope your kids remember from this class? Mm-hmm. Like content, what skills do you hope they're able to kind of apply in their lives or other classes, you know, beyond yours? And let's really drill down into those and make sure we're covering the things that really matter. And when it comes to homework, I think another piece of the puzzle that like frustrates me is just like the one size fits all lesson. Your comment about, you know, homework being something that helps the kids who are strong, you know, kind of excel and really hurts the kids Mm -hmm. who are struggling is it's like if we're assigning a one size fits all experience for homework, that's problematic. Like if you're going to send things home with kids, it should be something that is within their individual scope of possibility. And that's not happening either. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think sometimes the pushback on that is, yeah, but I don't have time. This is the push, the like universal pushback for differentiated instruction altogether. Mm -hmm. I don't have time. If I have 25 kids, I don't have time to create 25 different lessons. And that doesn't necessarily hold water for me either, because there are lots of ways that we can optimize those lessons for kids' unique needs without having to create brand new lessons. And I think part of it also is helping kids to see what their strengths are. Mm -hmm. That's where a lot of this metacognitive work is so important. You know, whenever kids realize what kind of learners they are and what their strengths are and, you know, what what comes easiest to them. And, you know, that's not to say that we want to make everything easy, but whenever you know 
you know, maybe when it comes to how you do the work, if you know what comes easiest to you, if you know what makes learning stick for you, mm-hmm. and we can help kids self-identify that stuff and then self-adjust their lessons a bit to to meet that kind of stuff, you know, now all of a sudden they're doing a lot of that work. And that's also promoting lifelong learners too. Absolutely. I mean, you see lifelong learners in every single mission statement of every <laughs> school in the entire world. But, you know, like, what are we really doing? In this case, identifying what kind of learner they are and helping them learn how to make those adjustments, that is definitely one step in that direction. Oh, totally. And it really, so much of what I focus on in my work around um, training teachers and blended learning is it has to be a partnership. Like for too long, teachers have been doing kind of this lion's share of the work and the thinking and all of that and the assessing. And I'm like, we have to teach students the skills, like you're saying, like develop those metacognitive muscles and figure out what works for you and where do you see growth and where is there stagnation and what do you want to work on and what support do you need? Because it's not possible for a teacher to like know that for every kid all the time. So how do Mm -hmm. we help them to understand themselves and share that in a way that then we can partner to work together to meet their needs? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So important. Yeah, you're totally right. I would one other quick thing about that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of times whenever teachers hear a statement like the one that you just made, um, the pushback to that end. So <laughs> I'm the pushback guy now all of a sudden. <laughs> oh, you you and I hear it all. So yeah. don't worry about that. <laughs> right. Yeah. The the pushback becomes, oh, but you know, those kids are just gonna pick out the easiest thing that they can. And if they find the easiest thing that they can, then how much learning are they gonna do? And I don't think that that's totally true either. Mm -hmm. I mean, no matter what happens in a classroom, there are going to be kids that are going to try to game the system and are going to try to abuse it. Mm -hmm. Let's just accept that that's going to... I taught high school for 11 years. Mm -hmm. I know, Mm -hmm. you know, but the truth is, is that whenever we give them the freedom to do what's best for them, so many times they're going to get it right. It Mm -hmm. makes me think of uh, whenever you fly on a plane and you go in that lavatory, every once in a while, you'll see a little sign that says, whenever you get done washing your hands, please wipe down the basin for the next person. Mm -hmm. Do they have to do that? No. No. Are there a lot of people that don't do it? Mm -hmm. Yes. But there are a lot of people that do because they choose choose to do it because it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of the same thing. If we give students the option to choose what's best for them, A, it empowers them, and B, a lot of times it helps them to learn better. And I think we, I think we just fear that abuse when in reality, there's, there's going to be a lot of kids that feel empowered instead of, you know, open to be able to abuse the system. Yeah. And I think sometimes there is just this lack of recognition that our kids are just as human as we are. And there are days when I'm given options and I'm tired or I'm emotional or there's just something going on for me where, yeah, I'm going to choose the low-hanging fruit because that's where I'm at that day. And then there are other days when I'm I'm wiping down the bathroom counter. Like I'm doing my part. I am reaching for the higher, more challenging tasks. But like we all have our days. And sometimes I think it's easy to forget that these kids are, they're dealing with a lot in their, their social lives, their home lives. And so to just not criticize all the time that, oh, it's just the easy way out. Maybe it's just what they need today. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree with you. Okay. So let's transition. You know, we've talked about homework, Mm -hmm. clearly a volatile issue. And now I want to go and and shift focus to kind of busy work, worksheets, and grading. Because you Mm -hmm. make the point that, you know, 
the busy work, the worksheets, they really do create a lot of imbalance in terms of a teacher's workload. And I I talk about this all the time too, right? If you're going to slap points or grade everything kids touch, then you just have a mountain of work all the time. So how do you suggest, and maybe this comes from the book as well that you wrote with Alice Keeler, how do you suggest teachers provide practice and review, but kind of stay away from what feels like busy work or or feel like they have to grade everything that kids touch? Yeah. And see, I think we're we're getting, we're, 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 <laughs> we're walking right up to another one of those myths. You know, the idea that if I assign it and students do it, then the learning has happened. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of, I mean, you know it as well as I do, there are lots of poorly created learning tasks that get a grade in the grade book, but don't really transition to learning. And the more that I learn about the work of cognitive science and how it applies to education is that a lot of these really great things that create sticky learning mm-hmm don't necessarily add more time to our tasks that we have to do in the day, Hmm. which seems weird and it almost feels like cheating. But (laughs) the truth is, some of this stuff really does work better in it and it helps. For instance, there's um, research that talks about the ineffectiveness of pop quizzes. Mm -hmm. You know, whenever you throw a pop quiz on a student, but if you do sort of like a reflective self-quiz almost like a brain dump, and Mm -hmm. it's ungraded, that's the kind of thing that consolidates things into our long-term memory. And see, that kind of thing, we take some time, and we give students some time to, you know, type out or write out or pair up and talk out what they've learned and what they remember. You know, it's it's that free recall that is so powerful in in long-term learning. Mm -hmm. And we look at that, and again, it's like, yeah, but somebody might abuse that. Somebody might just sit there and talk about what their favorite kind of cookies are. And like, what, what's that going to do do for my class? And, but the, the reality is that that's the kind of thing, you know, if you, if you sit and recall everything that you can remember about a specific topic, that consolidates things into longer term memory. Again, it's empowering our students to be better learners. And so if that's the case, that's something that, sure, it doesn't show up in the grade book, but it also means that you don't have to grade it. And it also does make things stick for the long term. Yeah, that's and at some one. point, you're going to assess that. So you it will show yeah. up in a grade book eventually. But what you've done is given them like a little boost into that long-term memory so that hopefully when you are asking them to dig back and do whatever the performance task or the essay or the mm-hmm. test is, then they're going to be more successful. Yeah, and it's also teaching them better study habits, you know, mm-hmm. how to how to be an effective learner. So that's one. Um, another one when it comes to all of this uh, busy work and worksheets and all of these things that are like that take forever. Let's talk about something else that takes for that can take forever. And that is you know, creating materials for students to do. I think a lot, it's, it's part of the reason that there is an enormous economy around teachers pay teachers right now. Mm-hmm. And there's one little um, almost like no prep addition that you can make to an activity, I think, that increases, uh, you know, student critical thinking, kind of deepens the, the thinking that goes into the activity. And it's just very simply asking this one question. Why do you think that? 
Mm-hmm. Why did you respond that way? Uh, describe your thinking. Exp- justify your answer. Something like that. Mm-hmm. That's one little sentence that we can add to so many different activities. Um, and it encourages students to think back on that and to provide justification. And you know, that's yet another thing where we don't have to come up with a whole bunch of you know, we don't, we don't have to come up with a whole bunch of uh, fancy materials, Pinterest perfect materials, you know. <laughs> um, that's that's one little thing that we can add in that doesn't take very much time that, that adds a whole bunch of that extra thinking. Um, the one other one that I'll mention real quick since we're on the topic is also the idea of, um, of retrieval practice. Mm-hmm. And this is another one of those, uh, you know, cognitive science findings that's so powerful. It's the idea that your studying and learning time are more effective when you study by recalling things out of your brain instead of pushing things into your brain. And so really, that goes back to, I mean, it can be a number of things. I mentioned the brain dump earlier. Mm-hmm. Flashcards still work for things where you need to get them into your brain for long term. You know, some of that like basic foundational stuff that you still need to to hang on to. Um, and that's another place where where they say that if you do low stakes, ungraded work, that it ends up improving students' long-term memory. So, I mean, there, there's just, we, and we could go on and on with more examples of this. Those are some of the ones off the top of my head anyway, where I think we can take some of that busy work off. And it's just like you said, too, it's not going to add grades to the grade book, but eventually you do get assessed on it. The students do have to demonstrate understanding. They have to show what they know at some point. And if we can use class time to help students, you know, boost their understanding and boost their memory, you know, that's that's going to end up being better. It's kind of like I, he- I heard someone say once that <clears throat> if you raise cattle <laughs> and you want to have a cow grow, mm-hmm. the best way to have the cow grow is not to measure it over and over and over again. You don't put it on the scale over and over and over again. What do you do? You feed it. And so I think there's a there's sort of a parallel here. What are, what mm. practices can we use to feed our students so that they'll grow so that the next time that cow goes on the scale it weighs more. Interesting. Yeah, listening to you talk the the second strategy about asking a simple question of like yes. why do you think that? I was in a coaching session with a math teacher and the students had already done kind of like a practice review page of problems and his instinct was to give them another one. And I said, well, what if, you know, which is always how I'm like, I'm going to like suggest something different. I said, what if we give them a really meaty, fun, quirky, like real world math problem? You know, go to a website like yummymath.com, grab kind of a fun math challenge, put kids in collaborative groups and have them work together to figure out, okay, this is a real world math problem. And how would we move from where we are right now to attempting to solve this problem? What strategies would we use? What decisions would we make? Mm -hmm. Why would we make them? And so they engage in this kind of conversation, this collaboration, this social negotiation around this task. And the objective actually was not to answer the question. It wasn't to come up with like the right answer. It was instead to then each, each student in the group to go onto Flipgrid and record like a a 30 second, 60 second video describing their process, like surfacing that mathematical thinking and saying, you know, this is how I would go about solving this problem. And I will tell you, Matt, 
those videos were some of the most fascinating, compelling, like you just felt like Mm -hmm. you got such a clear sense of where these kids were at in relation to specific mathematical concepts and processes. It was, it was awesome. And so I think adding a question like that does something very similar where it's like, okay, now I have to articulate my thinking and my process and my reasoning in a way that Mm -hmm. a lot of work doesn't ask me to do. Yeah, no, you're, you're so right. And that isn't that interesting that that particular task, they weren't even asked to come up with the right answer. No, yeah. Which so many times in math classes and just in traditional education, we want to come up with the answer, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it goes back to that old maxim of Google's out there with the answers to a lot of questions. <laughs> so what are we going to do to help kids become thinkers so that they can do something with that? And yeah, that gets that gets right into that it's it's almost like it lets us peer inside the minds of our students. Exactly. It? Yeah. To see how they're thinking and to see how they see the world and everything. And whenever a student, you know, makes something for me or finishes up an activity and they hand it in and I only see the answers, I have no idea mm-hmm. how they came to that. And that's really the most important stuff is to make sure are the processes for getting that answer accurate and reasonable and in place. And if they're not, let's start to deconstruct those and and build them back up. And that's the kind of thing you don't get if all you ever get are the answers. Yeah, that's a really great point. All right. So in addition to the two books we've already discussed, I feel like you've written two books focused on technology, right? So mm-hmm. don't ditch the tech and tech like a pirate. Mm-hmm. Am I missing any? Uh, no, that's, uh, (laughs) I wrote a book about Google Classroom too, but that's a little less pedagogical in nature. So, (laughs) so I'm curious, like, I'm sure you see a lot of tech being utilized by teachers you engage with, you work with, what do you see as some of the common pitfalls to technology use and how do you encourage teachers to maybe avoid some of those or how they should be thinking about technology use? Oh my goodness. Do we have another couple hours to talk about this? (laughs) Just the Cliff Notes version. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, so there's there's a variety. In fact, in Tech Like a Pirate, I wrote an entire chapter about this. It was like little love letters that I wrote to my readers encouraging them because they have, you know, these doubts about a variety of different things. So I've kind of I've touched on this in that book a little bit too. And, you know, there, I think there are a lot of um, misconceptions. Mm. For instance, there's the overwhelm misconception. Well, Overwhelm is a real thing. It's not really a misconception. But, you know, a lot of times people will go, oh, there's so much stuff when mm-hmm. it comes to technology. I mean, even inside my learning management system, there's a lot of stuff. And then there's all of these apps and tools, and I just can't keep up with it all. Mm-hmm. The misconception is that you have to keep up with it all, which you don't, Mm-mm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I think um, if we just name that and claim it, I think that's huge. Um, I'm I'm kind of the poster child for that in that... In my own high school Spanish class, I was very, very heavy on one particular tool. I used a lot of Google Slides. Mm -hmm. I still sort of see, (laughs) I like to joke that whenever I come up with an instructional problem, like something that I need to try to uh, help a teacher with or something, I I feel like I can solve it with the right Google Slide deck. Right. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Just just because it's such a powerful, creative tool for, for kids. And What's great about that is that it's flexible and it can be used in a variety of different ways, which means I don't have to be up on the latest, greatest tech tool and I don't have to know all of them and I don't have to choose between all of them. I just pick something that's right for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's definitely one. 
Um, another one that I hear sometimes, uh, and I, I outline this a little more in my book, Do More with Google Classroom, because this is this this I definitely hear about Google Classroom, but also with other learning management systems. Um, they'll ask me, do you have any good Google Classroom assignments that I can use? You're and like, I wait start, a second, what? <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. For a while, that that question sort of sat funny with me, and I couldn't figure out why. And I started to realize that they they start to see the role of their learning management system in the wrong light mm. because they're learning. I mean, it's it's fair because a lot of times our technology professional development focuses on the learning management system, mm-hmm. and so then teachers a lot of times see their learning management system as the end all be all of everything I'm supposed to do. I've even seen school districts where part of their evaluation was their use of like yep. Canvas. I've seen in, that too. Yeah, yeah, which is which I think is sad. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they what they see is that their assignments need to be Google Classroom assignments, and they don't realize that these learning management systems are an opportunity to use the entire internet around you to create lessons. And the way that I like to phrase that is that um, Google Classroom or your learning management system is kind of like an airport. <laughs> See, if you plan, this is going to be a, a deep, ridiculous analogy. So bear with me. I'll, I'll make it fast, though. No, no, I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> because if you think about uh, if you think about a vacation that you really want to go on, and you start to envision that vacation, you're usually thinking of the mountains or the beach or the food or the fun things you're going to do with your family, and you're not thinking about the airport Mm. because the airport is a means to an end. An airport is the way that you get to that place. Much like a learning management system is a way to get to the good stuff. So you look at Google Classroom and a lot of times Google Classroom, you look at it and it's kind of underwhelming. It's like, where's the fun? Where's the pizzazz? (laughs) Where's the flash? You know, and Google Classroom doesn't have it. Um, I mean, you can assign things natively through docs and slides and sheets, but there's not there's not a whole lot there. It's because it's the airport. Your assignment is kind of like the airplane mm-hmm. that gets you to that place. We can go even deeper in this analogy, and I could say that like with Google Classroom, you have domestic flights, which <laughs> keep you inside the G Suite, and you have the international flights, which take you to other tools like Flipgrid and Wakelet and all of those. So um, when you start to see it that way, that your learning management system is just a means to an end, it's a way to get to that article or that video or that tool that will empower students to create something, um, then you start to see things in sort of a different light. Like I said, I could go on and on and on with these things, but those are a couple of them off the top of my head that I hear a lot of. No, and it really resonates with me because I always stress, it is not the number of tools you use. It is Mm -hmm. how you are using them. Mm -hmm. And your point about tool versatility for me is critical. So the reason I love things like a Flipgrid is just because you can do so many different things with it. And it means you don't have to run out and find a different tool for every single task or job you're trying to do. And that versatility, Mm -hmm. I think, is really valuable for teachers Mm -hmm. who might be feeling, as you said, overwhelmed. Right. Totally agree. All right. So I always end by asking my guests to share a strategy or a tip that they have kind of adopted that they use to create and maintain balance in their personal and or professional lives. Now, before I I pitch this question over to Matt, I have to tell you guys that he filled out the entire podcast like prep sheet for me while on a 
uh, were you running? Were you on a stairmaster? Yeah, I was on a I was on a treadmill. Okay, on the treadmill, <laughs> talking into his microphone, and I'm not kidding. You knocked that out. I think an hour within my sending it to you. So I know we're about to. Um, I, we should just buckle up for a treat here, people. So. Is there something you have found particularly helpful in striving for a better, more healthy kind of work, work-life balance? Oh my goodness. And see what you just did there. You I like know. totally, totally <laughs> built it all up. Um, I, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you that one that you just mentioned that voice typing totally saves my life. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I've, I do it with text messages a lot, but I also respond to a lot of emails and I'm starting to do more and more and more with it that you know, we obviously talk a lot faster than we can type, especially mm -hmm. with our thumbs. And um, that's something where I'm able to knock out an awful... I'm, I'm trying to find more and more things that I can do with my voice. Mm. Um, you know, asking the Google Assistant to tell me things or, you know, any of that stuff. So that's, that's definitely one. And since you mentioned that, I thought I'd bring it up. But um, the one that I wanted to share is something that... Um, Almost seems a little bit too simple, um, but believe it or not, has really had a big change in my life. And that has to do with breathing. Mm. So when it comes to maintaining balance and, you know, balancing stress and trying to take care of all of it, um, I've started to realize that a lot of times whenever I start getting a lot of things on my shoulders, uh, whenever I've got a lot of things on my to-do list, when I've got a lot of things on my mind, I start to kind of like hold, it's either like hold my breath or not, not totally release everything out of my lungs. And I start holding all of this tension in there. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was, I was actually at a, um, a public speaking training. I went to this like intensive public speaker training that was like on and off for four different months. Oh, wow. uh, virtual and in-person and everything. And one of the people we got to work with was like a vocal coach. And she talked about breathing and everything. And she said, what we, what we don't realize is that we don't breathe, we don't let all of the, the air out of our lungs a lot of times. And we end up breathing in like the top third or the top half of our lungs and we don't use the whole thing. And I started to find that whenever I'm, an, an easy way to relieve some of that tension and help me kind of like get my head straight is just to take a big, long, slow breath. They call it, some people call it box breathing. Hmm. It's the idea of like breathing in for like four seconds, mm -hmm. holding it for four seconds, releasing for four seconds, and then holding it out for four seconds. And I, I was looking at your question and I'm thinking like maintaining balance I could tell you about Google Keep, or I could <laughs> tell you about Wakelet, or I could tell you about, you know, how I keep my to-do lists or the fact that I have a big whiteboard in my office that I keep track of tasks. And, you know, like I could tell you all of that stuff. But really, the thing that sort of transcends all of that, that has helped my overall well-being, I think, more than all of that stuff is just the ability to, to breathe, to recognize that I'm not using my entire, you know, I'm not, I'm not using the air, the oxygen that drives my entire being enough and the ability to take that breath. And it's something that you can do in, you know, just a matter of a few seconds that kind of like 
changes everything a little bit. So again, I hope that that one's not too like underwhelming, but um, <laughs> that's that's really one. If we're talking about balance, that's mm-hmm. something that has helped me tremendously. No, I I should work on both of those things. The first one, the voice to text or, you know, however, mm-hmm. whatever device you're capturing it on. It's kind of ironic that as a person who does as much public speaking and clearly has a podcast, I mm-hmm. feel like I must not speak clearly into my phone or enunciate because when I'm talking in voice to text, when I look at what's captured, I'm thinking this is total garbage. This doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. what are you doing? So I clearly have some work to do there. And I have an Apple watch that does like, you know, prompts you to breathe. And I always get kind of snarky with it where I'm like, of course I'm breathing, (laughs) but your comment is so true. A lot of times it's shallow breathing and it's not really filling you up. And so Mm -hmm. as somebody who's done yoga, I know how powerful that deep, really intentional breathing can be. So Mm -hmm. I love that. Nobody's ever shared that too. Oh, cool. All right. Well, I want to thank you so much for spending part of your day with me. I know you are super busy, but it was so great to get to chat with you, Matt. Oh, this was fantastic. Thanks so much for inviting me. So for me, there are a few takeaways from this episode with Matt. And the first is not to allow something like a textbook to limit our creativity as educators. A textbook, as Matt said, might be a great scaffold for a new teacher or provide a helpful scope and sequence. But just because the textbook says to teach a particular way or facilitate a lesson in a particular way does not mean that's the only way. So we don't want that textbook to negatively impact our creativity as teachers. I also really selfishly love the conversation about homework because that's something that particularly as a parent, but I think the longer I'm in education, the more I question the value of a lot of homework that's being sent home with students and to really keep those equity issues and concerns in mind when we think about homework and we think about the kinds of tasks that we're sending home with students. And is it a single assignment for all students regardless of their ability? Or are there opportunities if we are going to be sending any work home that we're being very thoughtful about differentiating that experience, making sure that the work is within the student's zone of possibility to be successful because we can't guarantee that there's an adult at home who can support them in that work. And we don't want to set kids up to fail because we're assigning homework. Even if our intentions are good, um, they can have negative consequences. So just being really thoughtful about that. And I don't know about you guys, but I am going to definitely be working on my breathing after listening to Matt talk about the impact that deep and thoughtful and intentional breathing has had for him. So thank you for joining me in this episode of The Balance. Thank you to StudySync for producing and sponsoring this podcast. StudySync is committed to helping teachers find balance in their lives by providing them with a robust multimedia ELA platform that simplifies lesson planning, automatically differentiates tasks for learners at different skill levels and language proficiencies, and blends online and offline engagement to help students develop as thinkers, readers, writers, and speakers. 
StudySync's most recently released product, Sync Blast, expands the company's scope to include engaging supplemental digital inquiry solutions for social studies and science classrooms. For more, visit studysync.com or follow the link in the show notes.